Well, um, I'm going to introduce our speaker momentarily, but I, uh, I'm the minister, and my responsibility is to rightly divide the word of truth and to present to you the scriptures. And the passage in our anchored reading, which is our two-year study through the scriptures, um, the New Testament reading was out of Acts 17, which is fascinating, because in Acts 17, the passage reads, and this is Paul speaking at the um, Areopagus, and he's talking to all these Greek philosophers as he's witnessed all the different uh, monuments to their deities, uh, and, and he sees one to an unknown God, and he uses that as a segue to present the living God, the God of all creation. He says, and this God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. So he's saying there's one race, the human race, which by the way, that scripture and my statement is systemically racist, apparently. Okay, boo, good, I heard that. One race to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of you, or some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. The idea, and I've said this often, is that <clears throat> we're breathing his air, drinking his water, eating his food, living on his dirt, and we're to live by his rules. And our founders understood that they didn't want to depict a denomination, but they wanted to, to make an, a clear understanding that our rights, our liberties, don't come from man, they come from God. And the reason for that is man is innately sinful, and we will use the law to weaponize it to enslave others. And so they created a form of government that had a checks and balance system, understanding the nature of man, and they did the executive, legislative, judicial branch. They also put the power in the hands of the people when they declared the sovereign to be we, the people. And then they say to the government that they govern with our consent. But they're bound, as I've said often, by the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution and the 27 amendments. And then when they violate that, it says in our birth certificate that it's our right and our duty to throw off such forms of government, not for light and transient reasons, but I will tell you one in particular is a governor declaring that the church is non-essential. I'm sorry, that just doesn't work. And so with that being said, amen, you can clap for that. You would think that the church, especially in California, would, would be so infuriated by that. But I am sad to report that that's not the case. We are Calvary Chapel Godspeak. We, we, our incorporation name is Calvary Chapel Thousand Oaks. We go by Godspeak. We're part of the Calvary Chapel a series of churches. We're not a denomination. We're a loose affiliation of churches. And the flagship, the very first Calvary Chapel, was in Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck Smith. It's the flagship church of the Calvary Chapel movement. Today, that church is being overseen by his son-in-law, Pastor Brian Broderson. I love Brian, but I fully disagree with him. And Pastor Brian came out and made a, a, a comment and I'm going to let you hear his own words. And the reason why I want you to hear them is because I did a live stream and responded to that. And I've never heard from him. Uh, neither has Mike McClure, who's facing $3 million of fines, nor Ken Graves, who's up against the governor of the state of Maine. Uh, Joe Pettick hasn't heard from him. John Randall hasn't heard from him. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur hasn't heard from Pastor Brian Broderson. But Brian Broderson had something to say to us as pastors who have stood for these inalienable rights endowed by our creator, inalienable rights given to us by God, and he had something to say to us, and here are his words, and take a look at Pastor Brian Broderson. I'm afraid that some Christians were more concerned with making sure that no one was trampling on their rights than was showing love to their neighbor by complying with pandemic restrictions and guidelines. Now, that's just a fact. That's a reality that some people don't even want to think about, but it is true. You know, it's, it's a sad moment, truly, when there's a crisis in the world and there's a lack of leadership and you would hope that the church could rise to the occasion and show people God's way. This is a, an opportune moment. Moments like these don't come along all that often. But what's happened during this moment? That for many, 
they're more convinced than ever that they don't want to have anything to do with the church or Christians because of the way they saw Christians behaving during this pandemic. With all of the insistence on my rights. You're not going to mess with my rights. You're not going to trample my rights underfoot. Well, listen, if Jesus would have thought that way, none of us would ever be saved. If Paul would have thought that way, the gospel never would have gone anywhere outside of the, the small boundaries of Judaism. And in our day and age, if the gospel is going to advance, we've got to lay down our lives and sometimes our rights as well for the benefit of others. Calm down. Uh, this was his tweet, even if we may have scripture on our side, for love's sake, we should choose, if need be, not to exercise our rights, knowing it's for the benefit of others. Uh, I just want to say to Pastor Brian, uh, I love you, you're my brother, but you're completely wrong. And faithful are the wounds of a friend, and I tell you that because I am your friend and your brother, and I would love to debate this with you, and I welcomed you, and let me know when you hear back from, yeah, wanting to hear from you. But watch this, Pastor Brian, because you said that we have, we have compromised the gospel. I just want you to know we baptized more people in, in five months than the population of the church was five months ago. Anyone who's been saved or given their heart to the Lord recently, please stand up. Just please stand up right now that those of you who have given your heart to the Lord. There you go. That's their testimony. That's their testimony. God bless you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I, I want to share this, that it, it, we are showing love to our neighbor. To the elderly who've had to die alone, we love them. To the abused who've been quarantined with their abusers, we love them. To the children whose schools have been shuttered, we love them. To the business owner, 65% estimated in this county whose businesses will never reopen, we love them and it's come at a price and we've been persecuted and maligned and you have never made one phone call to any of the pastors who are contending with the tyranny. And I just want to share with you, these are Pastor Ken Graves, this is his response to your video and, and I... I, I want you to hear what Pastor Ken has to say because I can't articulate as well as he does. My response to Pastor Brian Broderson. Brian alleges that some of us were more concerned about our rights than we were about showing love to our neighbor by complying with pandemic restrictions and guidelines. First, his insistence that only complying with pandemic restrictions would be loving our neighbor is outrageously flawed. Profoundly stupid, actually. <laughs> Brian... Brian has judged those of us who defied our governors as doing so for selfish reasons. He presumes to know our hearts and our motivations. And according to Broderson, real leadership means submitting to and complying with government officials' violations of the law. That, to challenge a governor in court with the law and to hold public officials accountable was a lack of leadership. Apparently, he cannot imagine that love and courage could compel a pastor to engage in civil disobedience. Love for God that would motivate a pastor to defy the unconstitutional and unjustifiable demand that churches not gather in the name of Christ and love for our neighbor as ourselves that would compel us to stand against officials who presume to have the power to order our neighbors to house arrest and to financial ruin. Brian is unaware that love could compel a pastor to be willing to suffer for the sake of the church that he stewards. That stewardship of the nation and our constitution also requires love. The kind of love that makes one willing to be mocked in the public square and subject to arrest and fines. I must say that the most unloving and cowardly thing for a shepherd to do was for him to comply with the unconstitutional and unjustifiable restrictions placed on Christ's church. Brian Broderson and every pastor like-minded with him in this matter need to be rebuked and indicted as blind guides who have no ability to recognize the wrong being done to their neighbors by these elected officials. <clears throat> Pastor Brian claims that pastors who defied tyranny were selfishly concerned about their rights was as shamefully absurd as his presumption that the tyrants that were harming our neighbors were motivated by love for our neighbors. 
Brian Broderson thinks better of Gavin Newsom than he does of Pastor Michael McClure. He attributes love to one and selfishness to his brother. And I say, Brian, you're not my enemy. People are not the enemy. They're the opportunity. But your ideology, which is enmeshed in critical race theory, though you would deny it, which is what all critical race theorists do, is a detriment and a cancer to the body of Christ, and it is affecting our nation, and it must stop, and you are part of the problem, and you really need to repent. Amen. I, I, um, I'm saddened because what governor has the right to declare the bride of Christ, the church, as non-essential? No one does. Our rights are given by God. And, and you're going to hear today from a man, I, I, I read his book uh, on, a, on a red-eye flight uh, cross-country, and I couldn't put it down. I was captivated. I was exhausted. And it's a hard read. But I was, I was absolutely mesmerized because for the first time, a human being articulated with, with academic scholastic excellence, footnoted every aspect of his findings, and articulated what I had suspected and was able to understand completely because of his writing. Fascinatingly enough, he's an agnostic. Fascinatingly enough, he's a liberal. I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm a conservative. And I have to say in front of all of you, I love this man. And Dr. James Lindsay, not only did I read your book on the way over, I read it on the way back. I landed and gave a synopsis, reader digest version, to my co-pilot, dear friend, David Glinky. And, um, and I've been sharing it. He equipped me. He has articulated this better than any pulpit in America. And the pulpits in America... I believe that shepherds want peace, but they think that peace is the absence of conflict. And, and they have been willing and unwilling pawns in this nefarious tool to destroy our country. And today, all of us, by the gift God's given us in an agnostic, strangely, and you're going, wait, how's that possible? That's how God works. Just deal with it. You will be equipped and educated to understand that which is, in his own words, this is Dr. James Lindsay's words, he said, if I were still an angry atheist, the tool I would use to destroy the church would be critical theory. And here he is today, as an agnostic, he, he knows that there's uh, order, he just doesn't know who's in charge of it, but we'll get there. <laughs> And he'll debate me and we'll have fun. But he's here today to defend and protect the church. He's doing more for the body of Christ than these pastors are. Ed Stetzer, Brian Broderson, these are all instruments of destruction in the body of Christ. And today, you are about to awaken to what God wants us to understand so that this cancer can stop. And with that, I want to welcome my dear friend and his friend who I've come to love and appreciate. And you're going to love this man. He is uh, sovereign, sovereign nations. His name's Michael O'Fallon. He is phenomenal. He is a Christian reformed in his doctrine. I'm not Arminian or reformed. I'm a biblicist, which we'll talk about that later. But I love this about what's happening in America. You can't have three more different guys and we're unifying because... Across America, especially working with Charlie, we have pastors that are awakening to this awful issue that we're facing that's destroying our nation rapidly. And we're unifying under this principle that if we don't get liberty right, which is God's idea, not man's idea, if we don't get liberty right, we're going to be discussing our theological differences from prison. This is the freest nation on the earth, and it is right now at one of its most critical junctures. There, this, this is a war. It's a war of ideology, thank God. It's not bullets, it's a war of ideology. We must win this. And so to help us today, to equip us and to bless us, these two wonderful men, please welcome Dr. James Lindsay and Michael O'Fallon.
All right. Now, we had a lot of fun first service, and I was really blessed. And I, I asked you to bat lead off, which was kind of cool. Uh, I went to dinner last night. I, I, I knew of Michael because I had met uh, you and your wife, uh, your nephew? Nephew and my niece. Who's yeah, well. nephew and niece. Uh, they had put on an event in Key Biscayne, Florida with Liberty University and Falkirk, and I had a chance to participate in that, and it was a resplendent event. You're really good at what you do. Um, and I, but I didn't know anything else about you other than that. I didn't even know the two of you were really connected. And I, I, I didn't put two and two together with Kathy that this was all in the same deal. I just thought, oh, it's Dr. Lindsay's assistant. I didn't know. And we go to dinner last night, and I'm listening to you talk, and I'm floored. I'm absolutely floored because you're on the front end of this. You've been doing it for four years, maybe more, mm. contending with critical theory and watching how it's invaded the church. And now the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, mm. uh, with their new president, Lytton. Mm -hmm. Isn't that right? Ed Lytton. Ed Lytton. Uh, and listening to Ed Stetzer, who's teaching, by the way, the, all the staff at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. These men are responsible for implementing critical theory in the church. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I... I marvel that the two of you, you came alongside, and I thought, you know, I'm the, I'm the first pastor to really embrace him, and it, no, you were already there. You're, you're Christian ministering and being a part of his life, realizing what a gift he is. Hmm. And this is the first church you've spoken That's in. right. Well, that, get ready, because you're going to be everywhere. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Would you set the stage for folks to understand what is taking place in the body of Christ and, and why you, like myself, you, you see such a gift in Dr. Lindsay and what God is saying and just share with us, if you would. Sure. Um, for a number of years, going back 15, 20 years, I've been involved in Christian apologetics and as well, we've served ministries and organizations all over the world. About 10, 12 years ago, many of the larger organizations as well as geopolitical organizations that had connections with the Chinese Communist Party uh, started using us as a bridge to get to different ministries and so forth. Within that, I heard things like, well, the one way that you can break America is through identity politics. Uh, and as we started seeing how this was working, uh, and actually the first place that I'd heard this within a Christian context, this phrase, which is, there's something that's coming that there's nothing you can do to change it. There's no way that you can stop it from happening. So you can either be on this side of things with us, the carrot, or you're going to eventually end up getting the stick because there's nothing you can do to stop this. Now, I'd heard that in corporate settings. I'd heard it in geopolitical settings. But I heard it first at Jack's place across from the Southern Baptist Convention from Ed Stetzer. And that was about 10, 11 years ago. Um, basically what the message is is that we need to be caring less about necessarily objective truth and more about what truth works. Uh, we have to understand that millennials and as well the next generation care about social justice and this is where their focus needs to be. But along with this and what happens is, is that all of a sudden you start to see it's not just happening and I understand this is happening within Calvary Chapel. But this is happening within the Southern Baptist Convention, the PCA, every major seminary across the United States, outside of a few, including Dr. MacArthur's seminary. They're not doing this. But it's happening everywhere. It's happening in the Roman Catholic Church. It's happening in Islam. It's happening in Buddhism. It's happening everywhere where critical theory, critical race theory, all the other things that go along with that, as well as intersectionality, are being infused into their belief structures which changes and morphs their belief structures because we believe that we have a standard, right? By what standard? The Bible. God's word, infallible, inerrant. So what they would say is, well, you have that, but there are tools that you need to be able to use to see not only the scriptures, but also the world. And some of these great analytical tools are things like critical race theory and intersectionality. And so what critical race theory does is it destroys all the foundations of anything. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about Christianity. It could be any, any major anything. Research, education, destroys the foundations. If you would imagine like a Las Vegas hotel being raised to the ground, right, to rubble. And what intersectionality does, which is actually the goal, intersectionality takes that rubble and builds that building back upside down in impossible shapes. I don't know if you've ever seen postmodern architecture. 
like if you've been, you know, to, to other places around the world, Prague, let's say, and they'll have a postmodern building. It's like, how does that stand up? Well, because we have new scientific ways of being able to do metallurgy and so forth to make it stand. Well, in essence, that's what intersectionality does. It makes something that's impossible possible, but not through objective truth. So what's happening is this is being infused into the church. And I'll say this, I'll just conclude with this. I have been trying to tell pastors that this was coming since about 2015. We ended our relationships with our, with our clients that were bringing this stuff in, and I started trying to warn the other folks. So few would even give me an ear, would even give me a listen. And finally, we started getting through to people on what was actually coming. But they wanted to stay with, well, it's just cultural Marxism and there's some disagreements. It's like, no, you don't understand what this is. All of a sudden, the next cue in a YouTube video after I was listening to lectures one day was a gentleman by the name of Dr. James Lindsay talking about, is intersectionality a new religion? And he understood that there's actually more of a hermetic as well as some, to some extent a, a, an Augustinian structure to what you could call wokeism. And that was where I became introduced to Dr. Lindsay. He got it all right. Before we get to Dr. Lindsay, uh, watching Pastor Brian and, mm -hmm. and hearing what he's saying, is this what you've experienced in the SBC? Is this what you saw with Ed Stetzer? Is what you've seen with Russell Moore? All those folks, is that similar? Tim Keller? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could take in any denomination that took the phrase, love thy neighbor, uh, absolutely twisted it. it. You could have literally hundreds and hundreds of men who you would consider upper echelon leaders in the denominations, whether it be Russell Moore, you said Tim Keller, uh, Ed Stetzer, and others that are saying, love thy neighbor means to lock down everything, end your lives, crush your businesses, crush your economy, change your civilization, we're all in this together, right? Because but they, they, they still get their, the, the, the government still gets their salaries. Well, yeah, and it's amazing. But everybody's going, well, well, wow. But yet the Dow is going up. Why is that? Because they're crushing their competition. That's why. Because they're crushing the little person. Because 80% of our businesses in America were made up by, by small businesses. They're being crushed. They're closed. But yet you can all pack, pack into Target. So... What you've seen is you've seen a complete change, and James will talk about Hegelianism yeah. and the dialectic and so forth that will help you to understand that. So, uh, and, and I, in the first service, I talked about the Hegelian dialectic, but I'll let you jump into that. Oh, and right. and I, I want to introduce to you a man that I've, I've come to adore and, and so appreciate. And as I said earlier, he is a self-professing agnostic and a liberal, uh, voted Democrat for every election, not the last one. Not the last one. <laughs> and 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 I'm I'm a evangelical fundamentalist conservative, and yet we're friends. Yeah. And and we're in this together because we're watching a nation conceived in liberty, more freedom than any other nation on the face of the earth, being wiped out. And you're in academia. Uh, you have a PhD, and you, you were raised Catholic, but you abandoned it because they didn't ask the tough questions. And, and you're a scholar, and you were always saying, why? Well, because Jesus said so, but, but why? And, and it's kind of like a Sunday school, Jesus. And, and yeah, it's, it's a good answer, but you got to go deeper. And so you wanted to know more of the world and revealed knowledge, and you started to dig in, and you came to an understanding that there is absolute truth. So we have that common ground. I attribute it to the Lord, you attribute it to something you haven't defined yet. Agnosis, agnostic, without knowledge. Yeah. You, you get it, but you don't, yeah, okay, but we'll get there. So, <laughs> I'm just, so with that being said, he, because of his scholarly endeavor, has equipped me and others to understand what we're facing, not just as business owners, not just as citizens of the country, not just as pastors, not just as parents and as teachers. Every vestige of our culture is being infected by this virus. Take it, run with it, share with them, elaborate, I'm done, go. 
It was only about 40 things I could say off of that, that lead-in. So I'll tell a story first that I didn't get to tell earlier. Um, the why, 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 right? So this is the most on-brand story I have from my childhood. My mother is very proud of this story. When I was two, I was in my why phase, as you might imagine, and my why phase was a little bit intense. <laughs> and so my poor mother, and this was in the 1980s, so you have to appreciate the, the, the sign of the times I'm about to drop on you. Why, why, why? And she said, I swear to God, if you say why one more time, I'm gonna slap you upside the head. And I looked my mom in the eyes and said, how come? <laughs> True story. <laughs> so it is, it's digging into trying to figure out how things work and how people think about things and how, whether it's an ideology or whatever, in this case with critical theory, an ideology operates that have got me to this point that have been able to allow me to write a book and to produce a website, newdiscourses.com, that puts out this information as much as, as fast as possible so people can become equipped to understand the biggest threat to not just our nation but to human freedom probably in our history. And uh, as, as Mike was saying, you know, it, it takes things and it twists them. So this is the essence of critical theory. It takes things and it twists them, whether it's love thy neighbor or any other message. It assigns kind of new meanings to everything that you, you think you know. So love thy neighbor has this very specialized, narrow meaning when they want to apply that. But otherwise, it's the normal thing that you're used to. So you agree with them until they twist you. It's the same thing, but you don't want to be racist, do you? But racism has a very specialized meaning. And you don't know that. You say, I don't want to be racist. I'll be anti-racist. Of course I'm anti-racist. And they twist you. And this is how it operates. It operates by means of twisting language. And if I might be so bold in your church, just to say that that's something a capital D deceiver might do. Um, we still... We, we, is it working? Yeah, we, we still give him a small d. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's all right. I, he doesn't deserve a big extra d. Extra small d. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Muy pequeño. <laughs> multilingual, as you yeah. can tell. I have like six phrases in like six languages. So, digging into the roots of this though, critical theory is a very old project. It didn't come out of the ground when George Floyd died. It has been insinuating itself into our institutions for decades. This is the end of a 100-year-long project with 100-year-older roots than that. Um, the project you've probably heard called the Long March Through the Institutions. That is the name given by a uh, German Marxist by the name of Rudi Deutschke to a plan laid out by an Italian Marxist named Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s. And Gramsci identified five key pillars. He understood how culture works. He understood that, that civilizations like Western civilization cannot fall to Marxism as long as they have their cultural values intact. And he called this force, like a force field that protects Western civilization from going Marxist. He called it cultural hegemony. And he understood that if you want to defeat cultural hegemony, you have to infiltrate the institutions where culture is produced and maintained, and you have to institute what he called a counter-hegemony. A new way of thinking, a new way of interpreting that which that institution does, twisting those meanings, so that it means something else until finally the whole thing changes. And he identified five key pillars of culture, and those are religion, family, education, media, and law. And you can see that all of those have been deeply corrupted already. The Long March to the Institutions has been remarkably successful. Um, since the Hegelian dialectic has been mentioned a couple of times, I guess I have to dive into Hegel. Yeah, you were talking about you know, bad German philosophers. Bad Germans and more bad Germans. That's Stephen Hicks' line for these people. And if you're German, he didn't mean it about you. Yeah, they're, they're mostly in the 19th century. Um, well, there were some in the 20th century, as it turns out. But yeah... Uh, Hegel had this idea, he had this obsession with what's called the dialectic. And the dialectic is where you take an idea and you meet it up with its contradiction. And then you collide an idea and something that, it's a, that is its opposite or its negation. And you figure out a way to simultaneously get rid of those two original ideas but keep their essence and lift them up to a higher plane. And that term for that in German is Aufheben. 
And what we call it in, in, the, in the philosophical literature is finding a synthesis. So a dialectical synthesis, I know this is big words on any morning, but is it still morning? Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's big words on any morning. It's morning for me. Uh, means trying to figure out a way to take two things that are not the same, that are not compatible, and find a way to put them in the same box and make, make some new idea that contains them both. So this is where we can get into why Rob and I have so many agreements. We talk about absolute truth. We talk about objective truth. We may disagree on what its name is, what, how it works, but we... What, what his name is. I'm glad you know the pronouns. That's right. Those are the correct pronouns. So, so yes, uh, we agree because our two views share some very important things in common. Uh, and that is that we believe that there is an objective truth that we have to be humble before. It's not our place to affect more than that which within so much reach of our own hands. You know, or three feet of influence, they say sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we have to be humble before whether it's God or the world. Because it's bigger than us, it's not something we can fully comprehend. So we have to humble ourselves, as you said, live by his rules. Right? This is something that we have in common. Hegel had a different conception entirely. He obsessed with these collisions of opposites. And two of the opposites he really thought a lot about were being and nothing. Can't get more opposite than that. That which is and that which isn't. Right? Beingness and nothingness. And he said, well, what is it if you collide those two that captures both of their essences but rises above them? And he decided that it's becoming. To become, you have to start with nothing and have something. You weren't good at what you did. You became good at what you did. You didn't have skill. You obtained skill and became. So becoming is the answer. So where you guys believe in a God that is, an Alpha and Omega that I am, I believe in a world that is that I have to be humble before. You all are humble before God. Hegel believed in a God that becomes, not a God that is. A God that has to come to know himself as God through his creation, through a other that he's opposed to. So you bring an other into the world so that you can get to know yourself. And the means by which that's done, in the words of another famous Hegelian named Lenin, is that you must accelerate the contradictions, comrade. So you point out these contradictions in society, like we're a very rich nation, but there are still poor people. Our founding documents say all men are created equal, but Thomas Jefferson held slaves. And you bring up these contradictions to pick at the fabric of society until the thing falls apart. I have this image, I'm scared to do it for real, but we can picture it together. You can use our imagination of having an American flag and picking at a loose thread till the thing falls apart. That's what this stuff does. It looks for the loose threads and tugs on them just so it'll fall apart. Right? And so Hegel believed that God becomes through people finding these contradictions and therefore perfecting the ideas, taking them to another higher, more progressive level over and over and over again until finally, in the end, God, the absolute idea, realizes himself, awakens to the fact that he's actually God, and then we have the utopia. The ideas are perfect. Everything's perfect. And he believed that the way that ideas work He had this kind of a spiral, is that ideas give rise to the state, and the state gives rise to the culture, which he called Geist, and the Geist informs the new ideas. And you have this spiraling through history, a progressive process, where the ideas make the state, and the state makes the Geist, and the Geist makes the new ideas. And it goes on and on and on, and so the dialectic progresses, as they say. And what you have to understand is Hegel had this sentence connected to this that the state is the divine idea as it, is, as it exists on earth. Repeat that again so folks hear that. Yeah. The state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. Not that. And so now you can see the difference between, I say there's these kind of three gods that are recognized between different groups of people in the West. There's the god you worship, the Judeo-Christian god. There's this the world as something bigger than and beyond all of us that people like myself look to as something that we have to be humble before. And we have a lot in common on that because it's, humility is the key. And then you have this Hegelian position that you, by accelerating the contradictions, you as a person, by accelerating the contradictions, by picking at that fabric, 
are going to help God awaken to himself, realize who he is, and that's arrogance. And I think that's the big thing that separates these two kind of big picture worldviews where you and I are not that different. And that's way out in, to be honest, left field. Yeah. <laughs> right. Talk about, if you would, the concept of this being so insidious that it's almost this viral aspect to it, the virus nature of, of critical theory. So you probably have noticed, right, with critical theory that you're going along, you have your church, your kids have their school, maybe you're in some social club or something, and then somebody comes in. And they start raising these kinds of problems. And they start saying these kinds of things. The next thing you know, the internal culture gets, and maybe not this church, but the internal culture gets kind of uh, tense and little controversies become big controversies and they polarize things and everybody has to take a side. You maybe have seen this pattern play out. We saw it on a national scale last year uh, after George Floyd died. It was anti-racist versus racist. There is no neutral, right? This extreme polarization. Well, it turns out that what's actually happening is you have people who take up the critical theory ideology and they're objective when they get into an institution. And I don't mean that they necessarily do this willfully, though some do. A lot of them are just playing out the program. And they get in and they start bringing up these points. They start picking at those loose threads everywhere they see them. And they try to do, whether it's diversity and inclusion training or whatever they call it, they try to get people to see where those loose threads are and teach them to pick at them as well. And it feels very much like what a virus does. I mean, we've just had a pandemic, so we all had a crash course in how viruses work. They inject their genetic material into the cell. The cell starts doing the work to, I use that phrase intentionally, to reproduce the viral material instead of what the cell is supposed to do. The ribosomes are transformed so that they will now create the viral proteins until the cell finally dies and ruptures and all these new proteins come out and new viruses flood and go infect other cells and continue. And so it seems pretty gross to call um, an ideology a virus, you know, prima facie, but Ultimately, we can do this because they wrote a paper in 2016 called Women's Studies as a Virus, where they held up the virus as their ideal metaphor for their project. They explained that they are, as an ideal metaphor for what they're doing, like AIDS, which is immunosuppressive, and Ebola, and SARS, the old one. And they even said that they compare themselves favorably to cancer because a virus, for example, HPV frequently causes cancer. Well, that's getting into a cell and changing what it does sufficiently so that you have permanent transformative change. And that's what they're looking for. So they're comparing themselves favorably to HIV, Ebola, SARS, and cancer, saying that's their project, and they compare uh, congregations like this to the immune system. In the paper, explicitly, they say so. This is a very healthy immune system right here. <laughs> Very good. Can I, can I jump on a thought here? Now let's take that, what he's saying about what's happening within American culture and society and Western civilization and so forth. Now imagine what's happening within the church because what is happening in civilization as a whole or within our nation, the same thing is happening within evangelical Christianity, within um, Catholicism and so forth at the same time. So where there's the unraveling of the flag, basically there's the chipping apart of the cross. And so as opposed to having the gospel of grace, where our understanding when, when we came to faith in Christ is that Christ paid a debt we could not pay that he did not owe. And yet we come to him humbly with our sins, realizing there's nothing I can do to save myself. And I have to humble myself before him, prostrate myself, and rely upon his grace and mercy, correct? To save us. Now, Imagine what's happening here. Now all of a sudden, as many different players are coming into the Christian church that are injecting the concepts of critical race theory, critical theory, intersectionality, all the other things, systemic oppression into these concepts, all of a sudden now you have a gospel not of grace, but a gospel of grievance, a gospel of vengeance, a gospel of resentment. You owe me something or else we're not going to have reconciliation. So they start talking about racial reconciliation. And you might be saying to yourself, well, yes, we want the races to reconcile. But what are they doing? They're talking about something collective. Races don't reconcile. Hearts reconcile. I'm half Cuban. My abuela and abuelo came over 
from Cuba to escape what is there now. My wife, her family is from China. They left China to escape something. That collectivism that demands that you be put into a category. It's hearts that reconcile. So me, who is, you know, a Lati half Latino, with my wife, who is fully Asian, there wasn't reconciliation with races. Our hearts reconciled to one another, and our hearts reconciled to Christ. And if the church does not stand against this virus, this ideological virus, like you stood so bravely and courageously, you don't know, actually, that's the normal Christian life. That's what your pastor did. That's the way everybody should be. The fact that anybody's anybody is opposing that is the problem. Like, that's what an American should do. And even Dr. Lindsay would say, well, of course that's what the church should do, if you really believe what you believe, but you're being told now to not believe the things that you know you should believe. We're in upside-down world. Black is white and white is black. And it's time that you say, you know what? What is the phrase that you use when you say? I say a lot of phrases, man. The one, the one where you're not going to put up with their manipulation. Oh, that one, yeah. Uh, I, I, I recognize the manipulations that they're doing, and one of the things that I often reply when they come and say, don't, you, know, you know, don't you think that we have to think about, you know, our complicity in these systems or whatever? I just tell them straight. I, I, I know th this manipulation. I know you're trying to manipulate me, and it doesn't work on me. And it's amazing what it does. It stops them in their tracks. Your manipulation doesn't work on me. That's the phrase. Yeah. Now imagine, let's say, if we take this idea of diversity and inclusion and equity, and you notice that it's not really applied well in sports, right? You know? <laughs> you have different, let's say, I, there's some people here that have been professional fighters, let's say. Uh, and with those people, they're put within certain weight classes and so forth. Imagine, have you ever seen, though, a transgender MMA fighter fight with women before. Yes. It's awful. It's ugly. It's not something we should be doing. It's not right. So yet, we're demanding that all of the rest of us somehow say, you know, the most important thing for us is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what was equity's, you know, the, the primary purpose and so forth was what? Uh, it's to, yeah, it's redistribution. It's to level the playing field and to, it, it, it's, just Marxism plus restoring historical, uh, historical imbalances. It's to disrupt and dismantle. Oh, that's the definition that the state of Washington gave it in an equity task force for their entire uh, education program and state legislature. Equity equals disrupt plus dismantle. And they have this whole thing you can find on YouTube where they're talking about it. And they actually argue, like, should we really literally put equity equals disrupt plus dismantle in there? Will people catch on? No, we have to keep it. No, we shouldn't. It's too obvious. You know, they're trying to figure out how sneaky they can be with their language. And they ended up keeping keeping it in there, the state of Washington, with a bunch of fluff words around it, but it does say equity is disrupt and dismantle uh, our society. And so the, the most difficult virus that you've been up against over the past year and a half is not COVID-19, and, and it, the virus is real, I had it as well, but the toughest virus that you're up against is critical theory, critical race theory, and all the other things that are part of that bag, postmodernism, uh, neo-Marxism, all of those things that are in kind of a goulash or stew of the most horrible ideas ever invented by man. That's what you're up against. Now, think about this for a second, too. And I'll, I know what your pastor stands for, and I know what other people in this congregation stand for. What always accompanies critical race theory? Anti-nationalism. Always. Because the intent is to splinter and fragment us as a population. And when that comes into the church, what does it do there? Splinters and fragments. We're talking within Calvary Chapel with churches that are maybe 100 and 120 miles apart. And now there's splintering and fracturing. So, so with, with what you just laid out, and then you also invoked this idea of transgender where biological males... Uh, transgender biological males fighting in, in female MMA, breaking facial bones of, of women, biological women. Now you've got a weightlifter in New yeah. Zealand, a biological male who couldn't compete with men, so trans, uh, mm. went female. And though he's a biological male, he is dominating all the records and will probably go to the Olympics to represent New Zealand. You've got 
female track runners, uh, they were just, I just saw them on the news. The mother uh, was a master's champion. The daughter was going to win her first state meet. And then a transgender male, a male, biological male, competes in the, in the female side and dominates it. So they say it's about science, but there is no science in any of this. And yet they mess with you to say that there's multiple genders and they teach this in academia. And as somebody who is a classical liberal, that you, you want to understand truth and, and pursue that, you, you look at that and you say, how did this infect, how did this virus infect academia? Um, help us understand that, talk about that infection aspect a little bit more, because in that first service, you guys nailed it, and we're almost there, bring it home. <laughs> I mean, academia has a lot of problems. Um, it's really not in good shape. You're not one of them. I'm not. No, I'm not even in academia. I bailed out. Yeah. Uh, I do my stuff independently. I got out of that mess. Um, the trait that they manipulate most, and as much as we want to lay this on liberals, it's one that's very, very common in conservatives as well, is agreeableness. Mm. It's wanting to not... For, for liberals, it's wanting to be liked. For conservatives, it's not wanting to make a fuss. Like somebody's acting crazy, just let it happen, go away, don't say anything. And I think that that's actually how it got in to academia, and I think that's how it gets into the churches. Let's not make a big stink. Let's not take a stand. Let's not say what we have to say where 50 years ago in academia, and that's how long it's been, there should have been people standing up and looking at these departments like women's studies that were emerging in the late 1960s uh, and these African studies that were emerging just a little after in the 1970s and saying, what's happening there is not scholarship. I was asked to review a book in 2018 or 19 that's called Critical Dietetics and Critical Nutrition Studies. And so what you have is a situation now where they're trying to create a critical theory of what dietitians do. It's not the Scientology thing, it's different. So what, what's happening is you've had an academy, and you shouldn't have churches, but you have churches too, that are allowing for bad ideas to propagate because nobody's willing to say, no, that doesn't belong here. That's not nutrition. What you're doing is not nutrition. And we could talk for hours about the ways that the, that the university was taken over, but it all boils down to people who should have known better being unwilling to say no. Being unwilling to say, no, we have principles about rigorous, rigorous methodologies. Our, our subjects have parameters that have developed not because white people or men or something like this laid them down, but because they actually work. Mm -hmm. They actually right. get right answers about the world on questions that matter like medicine. And you had a failure of leadership and a failure of responsibility is what the reason that this happened is. People would not say no when something didn't belong. Some of it's due to corruption with money. Some of it's due to just people being too soft-hearted or too idealistic. Some of it's due to people just not having the backbone and not being willing to take a stand and have noise and commotion around them because they said no to something that never should have been. Right. You touched on... And, and you, you kind of went by it real quick, but this is critical. You and I are unified with a belief that, that there is absolute truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where does the critical theorists get their truth? Is it through the Depression. Enlightenment thinkers, no. through, through the scientific method, no. through empirical data? No, they, they actually, I can quote to you directly from the, a book called Critical Race Theory and Introduction, which I've unfortunately read enough times to have memorized lots of it. Um, page 23? No, this will be page 3. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is the first paragraph of the book in a section titled, What is Critical Race Theory? And it says, unlike traditional approaches to civil rights which favor step-by-step -step progress and incrementalism, critical race theory calls into question the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, so so much for uh, all men are created equal, um, legal reasoning, so much for rule of law. Enlightenment, rationalism, all those things you just named, they're out. And the neutral principles of constitutional law. So that's the things that critical race theory in the very first paragraph of the very first uh, section of the book 
says that they're targeting. They want to get rid of the liberal order, the society we live in, and that's not like Democrats. They don't like rights. They don't like rights. That's page 23. Page 23, there's a paragraph that begins with, critical race theorists are highly suspicious of another classically liberal mainstay, namely rights. They don't like rights. They think that we should be replacing rights with a word that you hear a lot. Privileges. Mm-hmm. Privileges granted by the states, not rights endowed by the creator. Now, apply that to what you just went through. Again, something that you can all relate to here in California. Uh, by the way, we were free and pretty open uh, due to our governor in Florida back in May of 2020. We all have governor and so- <laughs> <laughs> But imagine, imagine this for a second. We do have the thing called the First Amendment and the Establishment Clause. And I'm looking over at California, and I'm seeing what the, the State Department of Public Health and as well your public health officials released, Ventura County and Los Angeles and in Orange County and so forth. And here they have guidelines that say, for baptism, if you're going to do baptism, there must be a screen in between and so forth. Oh, for you Roman Catholics who are going to be doing the Eucharist, there must be uh, the display of this. It cannot be together, cannot be broken and so forth. Oh, for you Muslims, your Prayer rugs have to be this far apart from one another for you to be the establishment clause. They're establishing religion. And if you, if you don't think where this leads and how this just was for this virus that we've just been dealing with, where do you think it's going to be leading ideologically? I, I, I want to read this, um, and I hope I can find it quickly. This is very exciting news, and uh, you're going to be the first to hear it, and so please... Uh, Keep it quiet. Don't share with anyone if you would. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. You guys have all become accustomed. Well, I'll just share off the top of my head here. Um, The state of California uh, contacted our attorneys, and we're in the discovery phase, and they don't want to go there, so they're offering to settle. I'm going to ask the elders for the permission not to settle. think the uh, elders have heard from the congregation. <laughs> James, um, limited on time, give the folks, I mean, I, I truly believe, as the scripture says, whatever things are true, whatever things are pure, meditate on these things. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman, and need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You entered into academia, you entered into the scholastic world because you wanted answers, you wanted to know truth. And you're on a quest. And, and just like Jesus said to Pilate, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyway, where were we? Um, sorry, man. I just keep slipping that in because that's my job. I'm a minister. But God has appointed you from where I'm sitting. And I, I can speak with gratitude. He's appointed you to awaken the church to this nefarious virus Tell us, doctor, what you believe the remedy to be for all these folks who want a future for their children and their grandchildren. What would you say needs to happen as soon as possible? Well, first thing you need to resist, but before I go, I gave a pretty good answer to this earlier, so I'll try to recreate it. But before I do that, I'm going to add something to it because we had, we had the, the verse from Acts, and it said this whole, you know, we're all one blood. One blood one human race, right? And so you use the word folks, and I reject that word. Um, You hear the word folks from the critical theory people a lot. That word is spelled with a V in German, and that is the root of that word. That's why they say brown and black folks and white folks all the time. What that refers to is a kind of nationalism and identity. They tested that that program out in the 1930s and 40s in Germany, and it didn't work. Um, It was a very bad plan. So what, that's why you see the fracturing of the, everything that it comes into, because now you have to start thinking of identities as nations, not as one blood, but rather as 
individual identity groups, whether that's black and white, whether that's gay and straight, whatever it is, as, ident as, as like national identities. And that's what's going to replace actual unified nations where we're all kind of one people, one blood, or one you know, body of Christ under the entire Christian uh, umbrella. And so you, you, you don't want to fall into that kind of thinking either. You don't want to think in terms of your identity or some narrow conception. You want to try to look for the biggest thing possible. But to try to recreate the answer I gave earlier, um, you have to lean into principle. You have to figure out what your principles are that you will not compromise on. That should be easy if you're people of faith. You know what they are. Um, the non-negotiables. The non-negotiables. You know, the, the, where you draw the line, you will not cross that line. This is the thing I won't give up. This is the thing I won't compromise on. This is the thing I won't change. You've got to be reasonable to be around in a world with people of different beliefs. But there are places where you don't compromise. You don't get to change what it means to be Christian for me or whatever it happens to be. I hold up three key principles, I think, as the most important. Those are truth, uh, beauty, and liberty. And liberty comes, of course, with responsibility. You have to have those together or they don't work. And you have to figure out what principles you won't let them tear apart. They won't, you won't let them pull those threads and rip apart those principles. Elaborate on the word beauty in the Greek as you had shared. I love that. Sure, yeah. I don't mean beauty like... Uh, like my wife who's a hottie. Exactly. Yeah. I wasn't going to go there on I know, you. but it's okay. I mean... I was going to try to keep things comfortable. Yeah, but truth is truth. So, come on. You have a point. Yeah. So... <laughs> that's right. So, no, I mean, when I say beauty, the definition that I give harkens back to the Greek word arete, which was an important word in a group that I was involved in when I was in college. And that word means excellence is how it's usually tra uh, translated. So, I, my definition of beauty is that which is excellent in what it's trying to be. Yes. And we shouldn't sacrifice that. We're, we're sick of ugly buildings. We're sick mm. of ugly attitudes and mm. ugly people. And I don't mean physically ugly. I mean, I'm a southerner. Don't be ugly. Yeah. Bless your heart. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if a, it, a cup is designed to hold water, it's a good cup. Mm. It's a beautiful cup on its ability to accomplish that for which it was created or designed to do. That's right. Okay. So we've been created to bring glory to God. And, and we've been given and endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of virtue or happiness. And this idea is the laws, the wise restraints that make men free. We, we apply restraints towards those things that are the least common denominator that are debased and enslave in order to pursue excellence, like your mind. You had to study, you had to do your homework to achieve what you've accomplished. And so that's why we cannot be indoctrinated. We must pursue truth and, and be steadfast in educating and we are responsible for the education of our children you don't surrender them to the state any longer that's right that's right this has to stop Absolutely. Michael would you share whatever's on your heart and then close us in prayer absolutely well yeah. I, I think one thing remember this is that you must recognize the epoch of time that you're living in each and every one of you. And each and every one of you can make a difference right now. Maybe you've excelled in your profession. Maybe you've excelled in other things within your life, within the community. This is a time to excel for the truth, for the nation, but most of all, as Christians, for the gospel. You must stand. Now is not time to be a coward. Amen. You must be courageous. You must speak the truth. 500 years ago, and I don't believe at all that this is a mistake, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, after he went to his standing for truth moment, ran to the Wittenberg door with the hammer and the nails in his 95 thesis. In 1521, he stood at the council in Worms when all of Rome and the entire state stood against him and told him to recant. And he said, here I stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. You must do that every moment of every day. Resist this and proclaim the truth. Amen. That's what you must do. That's a good word. That's a good word. Well, gracious and heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace and for your glory. Mm. Father, we thank you that you've given us 
the opportunity to be in a time such as this, where every moment of our lives, every second, means something for eternity, for generations to come, where we even see the idea of being a man or a woman or a family being torn apart before us, Lord. Let us be unifiers through truth, through your grace, and Lord, through your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray for this congregation. We pray for your pastor. Continue to give him strength and give him boldness and clarity. And Lord, we thank you for men like James Lindsay who are providing great clarity for all of us and that we may show ourselves to be workmen approved to carry your truth. We ask this in your most holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, James, Jim, Dr. Lindsay, I, I thank the Lord for bringing you into my life. Amen. Uh, all, this congregation is richer um, having you share with us today. Thank you for your diligence. Thank you for rightly dividing truth, explaining it to us. Michael, thank you. Thank you for blessing him, protecting him, standing alongside him. Thank you for your tireless efforts on behalf of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ even with all the slings and arrows. And may neither of you grow weary in well-doing and know that here at God Speak, you have a family. And we adore you both. Would you all stand with me? Lord, thank you for these folks. Thank you for today. Thank you for Dr. Lindsay and Michael. And Lord, we just ask that these truths that we've received today, Lord, please set the captives free. Uh, Lord, we will not back down. Lord, we, as the Apostle Paul said, stand fast. We will stand fast in the liberty for which Christ has set us free. And so, Lord, please, we pray that as you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we thank you that that is fully and rich and present right here at God Speak. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>